Hey there, I'm Tiara Vianne, and this is KJZZ's Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. It's the latest stories from the week, and it's designed to catch you up on some highlights from our community. Thanks so much for listening for the week of September 25th, 2023. Only one Phoenix City Council district will remain unchanged after leaders approved new district maps Tuesday. As Christina Estes reports, adjusting boundaries is required every 10 years after the census count. Between 2010 and 2020, Phoenix added 162,000 residents. The goal is for each district to be equal in population. Consultant Frida Mather told the council that in 2010, the differences between districts were less than 5%. But for 2020, the districts that they, as they are, the maximum deviation rose to 14.45%, which meant that our current council districts were no longer in compliance. To have each district represent about 200,000 people required additions and subtractions to all except District 1, which covers Northwest Phoenix. The new districts take effect in January. To see the maps, look for this story at kjzz.org. Christina Estes. KJZZ News, Phoenix. In business news, in 2022, a fire burned through 40 square miles of the eastern slopes of the San Francisco Peaks in Flagstaff. It burned away the trees and grasses that bolster the hill's resilience against rainwater runoff and threatened several thousand homes. Since then, county officials have raced against more rain to control that runoff. Michelle Marisco reports on their progress. Up on the slopes of the Upper Copeland Fan Restoration Project, a massive Caterpillar D9 Earthmover works to recreate in months what took nature centuries. The fire's origins are just on the other side of these hills, and when it burned, it snaked over them, then down, charring away pine, brush, and grass. And once that happened, there was nothing left on the slopes to keep the summer's rains from surging down. You can see all the erosion taking place. Lucinda Andriani is Coconino County's Flood Control District Administrator. She's driving us onto the slopes of what's become the county's biggest project, harnessing flooding and guiding turbulent waters into controlled channels. So as the water comes off the mountain, it's very channelized. You can see the eroded channels. It's very channelized coming down these steep slopes. And then it hits this flatter area, and then you can start to see that it's fanning out. She maneuvers the SUV onto this fan-shaped deposit or alluvial fan where the D9 cat is blading away the rubble brought down by last year's 50 rainfalls, where several inches fell in less than an hour. New channels have opened up on the mountains like veins, giving the water the momentum of a freight train to fall onto East Flagstaff. But in the past... Uh, If there were big rainfall events... Water never, ever reached the neighborhoods. Well, now, because it's being eroded and channelized, it is reaching the neighborhoods. The goal here is to slow it down, and that's happening not only on the surface. Underneath these big, wide areas that they grade out and flatten out, we place rock underground so that if it does start to erode, it will hit that rock, spread out, again, slow it down, and reduce the volume of erosion. So you can see this is very large rock here. An excavator steadily plucks enormous boulders out of a pile that was brought here from near the Grand Canyon and drops them into an entrenchment. See how he's tamping down the rocks. He's picking out a specific rock 
that needs to be go in there. He needs to know how much spacing between the rocks. Put the smaller amount, the smaller dirt, smaller rocks between that. And then they're, they're checking the grades to make sure it's the right depth, right? We step out into a windy day and onto the soils of the restoration project. This whole area was very heavily eroded, very heavily eroded channel, and it was sourcing sediment. So it was adding sediment to sediment that was ending up in the neighborhood and in the infrastructure. And so this is a very, very large, this is probably gonna be one of the largest fans that we'll have ever constructed out here. She describes the whole project as a laboratory, starting on high where steep mountains make it impossible to do this kind of work, drifting down into these fans we're now standing on, and then into managed downstream systems. Flood Control Community Relations Manager, Sean Golightly. Is what they call the, the terminal trench. And so the idea is once the water's all spread out, it flows into this terminal trench where they can kind of collect it and then direct it into the storm drain inlet there. The cost of these eight watershed restorations on the eastern slopes of the peaks is running millions of dollars apiece. So far, the county has spent $18 million to restore more than 110 acres of watershed. $90 million is slated toward all these projects. Nick Tordero lives near State Highway 89 amid the restorations. He remembers watching the pipeline fire. Was, uh, we're watching the fire come over the peaks. <laughs> and when flames and everything were blowing all over, so the sheriff came out and said we had to evacuate. Then the flooding began, and those powerful waters up on the slopes just beyond this house sent giant rocks crashing onto the highway. The boulders come down after the flood. And they go right on the freeway there, right on 89. The goal for flood control is to get these measures built in three of the new flood corridors before monsoons arrive in 2024. Michelle Marisco, KJZZ News, Flagstaff. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In front terrace news. A Biden administration program allows Cubans, Haitians, Venezuelans, and Nicaraguans to apply to come to the U.S. with the help of a sponsor here. More than a million sponsors have applied so far, but it's also landed in the crosshairs of GOP ire over immigration. From our Fronteras desk in Tucson, Elisa Resnick reports up to 30,000 migrants are allowed to enter the U.S. each month. Migrants accepted to the program can live and work legally here for two years on what's called humanitarian parole. The process opened to Venezuelans at the end of last year and expanded in January. Sergei Josevich Rodriguez remembers that moment well, mainly because moments later, his phone was buzzing with calls from friends and family back home in Cuba. Yeah, one minute after they were calling me, hey, Sergei, I don't have anyone in U.S. Can you be my sponsor? In one moment, I had like uh, 11 people in my list. Rodriguez is in his 40s with close-cut salt-and-pepper hair. He was an engineer back in Cuba. He and his wife came to Tucson with their son almost a decade ago on a special visa. He's a software engineer at IBM now, and he got his U.S. citizenship about a year ago. Still, as an immigrant, you always you always think about your family, your parents, your, sis- your siblings in general. And uh, you wish to provide them the best and help them. Rodriguez says the humanitarian parole program feels like a new chance. 
First, unlike a lot of other immigration pathways, there's no fee to apply. Applicants only need the money to fly to the U.S. and a sponsor to support them financially. And, he says, it's safe. The process happens away from the U.S.-Mexico border. That means people don't have to consider the other possibility, trekking across Latin America. Yeah, my thought was, wow, this is the, you know, this is what I was waiting for. He knew he wouldn't be able to help everyone who'd called to ask. But the program meant he could help a few. He started with his younger sister, Yulia. She arrived in April. I met her at Rodriguez's house. Yulia was one of three parolees staying there temporarily while they got on their feet. Rodriguez and his wife are also sponsoring their sister-in-law and her four-year-old daughter. You might hear the toddler in the background. I'm delighted to be here. Everything is totally new to me, Yulia says. She said a tearful goodbye to her family at the airport in Cuba's capital, Havana, and flew to Miami, where she spent hours undergoing final processing. It was the first time she'd ever been outside of Cuba, or even on a plane. She remembers feeling scared, panicked even. But also my pleasure to arrive and hug my brother and his family, Yulia says. Things are working out. But the program and the humanitarian parole authority it relies upon has also seen challenges. The joint committee hearing on the crisis on our southern border will come to order. At a remote congressional hearing in Arizona's Cochise County earlier this year, House Republicans like Wisconsin's Glenn Grothman lambasted the humanitarian parole process. The Biden administration's propaganda machine calls these unlawful parole programs lawful pathways. Make no mistake, these so-called lawful pathways are anything but lawful and are a complete abuse of limited parole authority. But humanitarian parole isn't illegal, and it isn't new. It's an executive branch authority that presidential administrations have used for decades. Vietnamese orphans were flown to Guam using the authority back in the 1970s. The same was used for Ukrainian refugees starting last year. David Beer, with the policy think tank Cato Institute, says parole has been used in 126 different programs over the last 70 years. Humanitarian parole is the fallback uh, for people who have no other path to, to come to the United States. And unfortunately, that's the vast majority of the people who are coming to the U.S.-Mexico border. Beer says that idea bears out on the ground. Customs and Border Protection data shows border apprehensions have dropped dramatically for all four nationalities over the last eight months. Cuban arrests have dropped by more than 90 percent. Still, the program itself remains on shaky ground. A lawsuit filed by GOP-led states seeks to end it outright. The case went to trial last month in Texas. Rodriguez thinks young people are still leaving Cuba for the same reasons he did almost 10 years ago. You feel trapped. You feel like... You are going nowhere. He chose Tucson because of a couple from here he met back in Havana. They helped him get settled, and he says the U.S. feels like home now. I feel like I'm in the, in the right place. He says he just wants to have the opportunity to give that chance to someone else. Elisa Resnick, KJZZ News, Tucson. Now from KJZZ Original Productions, here's the latest installment of Soapbox on the show. Do you ever wonder what your kid's teacher is thinking? This week, we're hearing from Arizona educators for the latest collection in our Soapbox series, where listeners tell their own true stories. 
This time, the theme is the classroom, and first up is Ruth Boyle, who teaches high school French and a few life lessons as well. As a young teacher, I couldn't shake the idea that the most important part of my job was to drill content. Methods at the time were still very traditional, lots of notes and worksheets, and an emphasis on all the details of spelling and grammar, regardless of proficiency. Thirty years later, I yearn for my students to know themselves and reach their truth. An unlikely student brought this home for me about halfway through my career. I don't remember exactly when Max became my student, and I'm not even sure how many times he took French one. I'm pretty certain that he never passed the class. Despite non-existent study skills, an inability to engage in the classroom, and a tendency to cut up with his buddies, Max wanted to do well. When his peers weren't in earshot, he was earnest and respectful and seemed pleased at any small successes. Near the end of the year, Max began to show up after school for extra help, most likely at the prompting of the wrestling or football coach. Max's efforts were sporadic, and it really became clear that there was no way in the world that he would be able to make up for a year of lackluster effort and gain enough mastery of the content to pass the class. I realized, though, that passing the class wasn't that important. And I decided that each time Max made the effort to come in for help, I would drop everything and work with him for as long as he stayed, giving him my full attention and validating his efforts. Max did graduate without any world language credits as far as I know, and he showed up at my classroom door a few years later. I didn't recognize him at first. His hair was neatly combed, and he wasn't wearing the stretched-out tank top that I remembered him in. As soon as he said his name, though, I made the connection. I was so honored that he had come to check in. All those years ago, he hadn't had any interest in being in my class or in learning French. But we had somehow made a connection because I had recognized him as an individual in his own right. He seemed to really want to let me know that he was doing well. He was working as a tepon chef. Is that a cool job or what? As I near the end of my career, the most important part of my job, for me, is to make sure that my students feel valued. They are worthy of success, worthy of happiness, and are beautiful souls just as they are. It's a daunting task for educators. The odds are stacked against us. Standardized testing, curriculum maps, graduation requirements, coveted class rankings. In the grand scheme, though, none of that matters. What matters is meeting students where they are and making them believe that they matter. Max, if you happen to hear this, thank you. I hope you're doing well. That was high school teacher Ruth Boyle. To hear her story again and check out our past Soapbox essays, go to kjzz.org. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. In science news... Policy experts say that about 74 percent of the state's water goes to agriculture. That means that farming and ranching offer the best opportunities for conservation. And as Ron Dungan reports, researchers at the University of Arizona are working with farmers to find new ways and new crops that might help. Building subdivisions in the desert might seem like a poor choice when it comes to water conservation. All those kitchen sinks and showers, all those toilets. But in the valley, About 89% of that water gets recycled. When a farmer irrigates his crops, it all goes into the ground. 
So researchers at the University of Arizona are working with farmers to find new ways to conserve. In this cotton irrigation experiment, we are testing two different systems. That's Dia Eldon Olsheka. He shows me around an experimental field near Maricopa, where researchers pump groundwater into a pond, which feeds the irrigation pipes. They planted two fields of cotton next to each other. One will receive drip irrigation, the other flood irrigation. We'd like to see how it would affect the plant growth and yield. The researchers use weather data to calculate evaporation rates. Solar panels power a system that adjusts soil pH levels. When they want to monitor the crop, they use drones. Ethan Orr, who oversees the program, says that while irrigation systems are important, they're just one piece of the puzzle. And we go out and we visit the farmer. We work with them. So we're looking at soil health. We're looking at crop productivity. Because what I don't want to do is create a mechanical solution that damages the soil and creates a generational problem of not being able to grow something 20 years from now. One way to improve soil health and save money is to rest the ground. But farmers don't make money from fallow fields. So researchers have begun to look at different crop rotation systems and different crops, such as Waiuli. The plant is native to the Chihuahuan Desert and can be used to make rubber. Debanker Sanyal is a soil specialist for the U of A. At the end of the day, it's a, it's a business. For commercial farms, it's a business for the farmers. So whatever they spend on it, they want some money back, some profit out of it. Arizona sunshine makes it a good place to grow crops. Farmers can grow two, three, four crops a year on the same ground. But with every time you grow a crop, you take something from the soil. Waiuli is different. It stays in the ground for two years before a single harvest. And it helps put back nutrients that other crops take away. And Waiuli can rest the ground and make money for the farmers. Here's the best part. It doesn't use much water. Bridgestone has invested millions to fund research in the crop. The chemistry of Waiuli rubber and rubber harvested in Asia is essentially the same. Bill Nayora is executive director of Sustainable Innovation for Bridgestone Tires. He says the company has already made tires with it. We are currently using it in, in our IndyCar tires for, you know, that, that race series. That's Indy as in the Indianapolis 500. So the company knows it can manufacture tires with Waiuli. The problem is growing the crop on an industrial scale. What we're trying to do is create a new industry for North America. There is no North American natural rubber industry, and we're trying to do it with a crop that's not industrialized yet. So, I mean, just, I mean, just think about it. When's the last time a new crop came on the market, right? That means analyzing markets, seed production, harvest techniques, crop insurance, and financing. Finding new ways to help farmers conserve water makes a lot of sense, says Orr, the department head. Agriculture brings a lot of benefits to the state, such as lower food costs. But the benefits go beyond that. And preserving ag helps mitigate the dust storms, the dust effects that we see on I-10, and it also helps mitigate the heat island effect. So while agriculture uses a lot of water, it brings a lot of benefits to the state. Farming is extraordinarily valuable, but it must be done in concert with the ecosystem. And with climate change making things hotter and drier, that will mean using less water. Ron Dungan, KJZZ News, Phoenix. 
And finally, in education news. Even before COVID setbacks, the nation's report card scored only one-third of U.S. fourth graders and one-quarter of eighth graders as proficient in math. Arizona rates follow close behind. This week, political leaders and education experts met to discuss possible solutions. Nicholas Gerbis reports. Barring a supernatural event, life likely arose from a special type of positive feedback chemical reaction called autocatalysis. Lab experiments have shown how even simple molecular ingredients can sustain such reactions and even make life-sustaining sugars. But how commonly might they happen outside the lab or beyond our blue planet? When researchers scoured the literature for examples of such self-sustaining reactions that could also build more complex molecules, they found potential in every group on the periodic table. The findings in the Journal of the American Chemical Society suggest life's chemical ingredients and recipes might be more abundant than once thought. Nicholas Gerbis, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And you've been listening to the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.